1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I've always been impressed by the brave and determined souls who take it upon themselves to begin listening to Tales to Terrify at Episode 1 and work their way forward. We have a tremendous amount of terrifying stories in our archives. I'd like to thank one of those intrepid listeners, Courtney, from Portage, Indiana, for pointing out that Episode 12's last couple of minutes was missing. Show staff would likely have never noticed that since we're far more interested in looking to the future. Drew Sebastini patched it up so it includes the ending of the story, but is missing the original closing audio. Despite many backups spread across many systems, we don't have a correct copy of that episode. So thank you, Drew, for squaring that away. And one other bit of podcast business. As I've mentioned to you, in the coming weeks, my role on the show will be diminished. We wouldn't mind adding a new face to the show. We'd like an editor, preferably one that has a bit of experience with audio editing. If that's you, and you wouldn't mind volunteering a few hours a week to the podcast, email us at tales to terrify at gmail.com. One of the subgenres of ours that I've had a bit of an on-off relationship with is the B-movie horror genre. In my teenage years, I'd love to watch the weird movies that Joe Bob Briggs would air with Monster Vision on TNT or Rhonda Shears' Up All Night on USA. Then I found myself hard-pressed to decide that I'd want to spend any of my time on a movie that is bad. And that cycle would continue until the present day. However, at my beloved Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia, they have another film festival called Psychorama, hosted by Faye Guerrera. Which features B films and slashers and the like, less arty than the movies at Lost Weekend. There were some fun movies in there. Terror Vision, which is about an alien prisoner accidentally transmitted to our planet through television signals, terrorizes a family, was a crowd favorite. The over the top characters did start to wear on me a bit towards the end, to be honest. The 1968 film The Green Slime, directed by Kenji Fukasaku and starring Robert Horton, the man with one of the strongest jaws I've ever seen, was a particularly entertaining movie, some from the theme, but some from the puzzling choices by the characters. If you need more of the 80s in your life, the 1989 film Death Spa was absolutely packed with it. It was also enjoyable for how strange the movie could become. The real gem of The weekend was something much more current, which is Ron Carlson's film Dead Ants, starring Tom Arnold at some of his best. The director was in attendance for the screening, which was a nice bonus. The movie is about a washed-up band who disobeys the Native American drug dealer who tells them to respect nature while in the desert. As a result, following an evening of drug-fueled partying, the group is assaulted by enormous ants. I'd encourage you to hunt this one down and take a watch. Let's hear some stories, children of the night. We have two for you this evening. Our first story of the night comes to us from a fresh face at Tales to Terrify. Dennis Mombauer currently lives in Colombo, Sri Lanka, as a freelance writer of fiction and textual experiments, as well as essays on climate change and education. He is co publisher of a German magazine for experimental fiction and has published stories in various magazines and anthologies. His German novel, Das Maskenhandwerk, has been published in 2017. Listen with me to Dennis Mombauer's The Feasting Dream, a Tales to Terrify original. The step grass swayed in its ancestral patterns like flaxen hair, and the rider dreamt of his lost sister. He had traveled on horseback for many days, but all the slight pains of his body didn't worry him, nothing more than a distant whispering in his mind. The dreams were important, the face of his sister half hidden by flames, her skin shadowed by soot, her eyes animated by fiery reflections. The dreams showed the rider a way to find her, and two days ago they had begun to change. All horizons were distant in this endless land, and on one of them pillars of greasy smoke rose up high, just like the intertwined cords the rider saw dangling behind his closed eyes. He steered his horse towards them without a second thought. A tent camp sprawled across the step under the smoke of a dozen cooking fires, sitting beside the makings of a half-finished road, dug-out trenches, wooden stakes rammed into the earth, gravel filling accumulated in great heaps. Dark-ringed eyes followed the rider as he slowly made his way into the camp, the hooves of his horse stirring up yellow haze from the sun-baked dirt. "'You there, hey!' In the first stirring of movement since he arrived, the rider watched armed guards jump to their feet. What do you want? Just a bit of water for my horse and me, if I may. Can you pay for it? One of the guards showed a smile of silver and missing teeth. Otherwise, you are out of luck. There is no luck in this land, the rider sighed and gripped his reins tighter. If you insist, I will pay you. Hold on, hold on. A portly man in an intricately patterned kaftan strolled out of the biggest tent. This is not the way we treat our visitors, is it? He turned to the rider. You must excuse my men. They are soldiers in uncertain times, used to more hostile circumstances. The great Khan has ordered the construction of this road straight from his capital to the utmost border of his empire, three thousand miles through the steppe. My name is Gisarni. I am the overseer of this magnificent endeavor. He studied the rider, and his eyes lingered on the rider's dusty lamella armor, and the talisman strapped to his arms. You are welcome to water your mount, eat with us, and stay for the night, if you so choose. Thank you. The rider dismounted and greeted Gasarni properly in giving a polite nod to the head guard. He had been traveling for a long time in pursuit of his dreams, and they had led him here like the winds led a torn-off blade of grass. It might be a wise thing to accept this man's hospitality. A great feast was taking place in the halls of an immense pleasure palace, in vaulted rooms like tents of stone and wooden beams. A colorful crowd of guests filled the halls and corridors, all of them in extravagant costumes and massive figures trudged through them, their masked faces floating over the crowd. The rider was standing on an interior balcony, searching the crowd for someone he recognized. He couldn't really see faces, just rustling silk and shadows. But as he scanned the people streaming across the hallway, it became clear that there was only one woman among them, with woven saffron hair, just like the rider's sister. Could it be her? The rider began to run down the staircase and dove into the crowd, trying to get to the place he had seen her. Bodies pushed against him to the sound of a tonal piping music slowing him down, made him lose sight of the woman who might be a sister. One of the hulking mask-bearers blocked his way, almost one head taller and vastly more corpulent than the writer. There was something hanging out from under its mask, something green and limp, but the writer's focus shifted as the mask-bearer moved its arm. Its fat fingers were improbably long, and it laid them on one of the guest's shoulders, like the branches of a gnarly tree. It almost seemed as if the figure was about to speak, but its mouthless mask produced no sound and then it ripped off the guest's costume together with his skin, putting it over itself in one fluid, horrifyingly swift motion. There were screams, the sound of running, a great commotion outside the writer's tent. It took him a few heartbeats to fully wake up and orient himself before he drew the dagger attached to his forearm and set himself in motion. Rose-tinted twilight still reigned outside, the sun barely peeking over the horizon but the whole camp was on its feet in a chaos of fear and aggression. What has happened? The writer grabbed one of the workers who just stared at him wide-eyed and shivering, big beads of sweat glistening on his skin. The writer let go of him and continued to move, stemming himself against the current of panicked workers. Suddenly something leaped out from between the tents, and all the writer could do was yank up his arm and reflex. Steel bit into him, a pain like lightning crackling across the stormy sky. He jumped back, saw a man running after him, tried to gain purchase with his feet. The attacker's arms flailed through the shadows, one of them holding a knife, and the rider tried to create distance with his own curved dagger. His opponent suffered one cut, two cuts, but didn't slow down, didn't even hesitate. There was something missing in his movements, any sense of self-preservation, and his eyes only showed white. His appearance was eerily reminiscent of the man undressed by the creature in his nightly dream, but the writer couldn't ponder this as the knife-wielder drove him across the camp. The blade flared towards him in blinking flashes, then abruptly stopped. Three arrows were growing out of the attacker's body, their feathered shafts still trembling from the impact, and he slowly broke down to his knees. Step back, stranger. Gisarney stepped forward between the archers but kept a respectful distance. Sometimes they come back up. Sometimes. The writer held his ground and closely observed the writhing body, ignoring the sharp pain of his own wound. Has this happened before? Every night over the last week, someone goes insane from their dreams and turns into an animal no longer human. We are bleeding people, a lot more than one per night. Desertations. Who was he? One of the workers. A stonemason from faraway land. Gisarni paused and licked his lips. But this madness can befall anybody, even you. Everywhere around the camp, people returned hesitantly to their tents to get one last hour of sleep before the sun would rise for good. Gisarni vanished into his own tent, but neither the rider nor the archers moved, paralyzed by the corpse at their feet. One of the soldiers lowered his bow. Might be something in the water, or some sickness carried by the wind— This is a bad place. No local tribes live here. The writer shook his head. This is not a sickness of the body. It doesn't come from the wind or water. he had experienced the dream, and he remembered it, his memory protected by the talismans he carried. Jasarne had joined them again, dressed as immaculately as the first time the writer saw him, with no sign of worry in his round face. You know more about this, don't you? These occurrences threaten the construction of the great Khan's road. They can't be allowed to continue. Enlighten us with your knowledge, most venerable, of guests. I have some experience with dreams. The writer saw his sister again and wondered how all this would lead him to her. Whatever is happening, it comes to you in your dreams, and it won't stop until you find its source. Intriguing, but how would we do that? I can follow the directions of dreams. Dreams have no directions," the head guard returned the writer's look without flinching. "Oh, but they do, don't they?" Gassarney smiled innocuously. His hands concealed inside the sleeves of his caftan. People dream about the things they want. I guess even animals do, and these things are always located somewhere else. This is what they call direction, isn't it? Two points, one line, and we are following the line to its point of origin. They mounted a small expedition, just a dozen men under the command of Jasarni, but all of them heavily armed. Lances bopped with the up and down of the horses' backs. Bows were strung over shoulders, scimitars and javelins hung from saddle latches as if the men were riding into battle. And for all they knew, they actually might be. The going was steady until they reached the bed of a dried-up river filled with loose gravel and the threat of snakes. They had to dismount and carefully lead their horses through, which took them almost till nightfall. Tents were erected with the seasoned efficiency of men who had done this since childhood, and when the stars sprinkled the immense dome of the night sky, they were already sitting round a campfire. The rider was searching for the face of his sister in the smoldering logs, but he could only see the towering figure from the dream ripping off the skin costume of that poor worker again and again making him go mad in the waking world. How do you know so much about dreams? Because I seek a dream, hunt after it, follow a trail of images and omens. My sister was taken from me a long time ago. Now my dreams lead me towards her. The writer spat into the fire and made it crackle. Let us all go to sleep now and be careful what we do in the darkness. Some dreams are more dangerous than others. The Pleasure Palace had opened its gates again, and guests were swaying all through the hallways in a confusion of colorful costumes. The writer saw one of the masked figures strut along them, creating an empty space in its wake that people only hesitantly walked into again. It had gotten bigger and fatter, for it had added the skin and costume of the dead stonemason to its own mass, and the writer felt a wave of warmth wash over him, as if a musky breath had been exhaled by the giant. He tried to hide among the other guests, to stay as close to the walls as possible and find a way out. He was wearing a costume as well, a contraption of flowing silk and bright colors, which he had never owned or seen before in his life. A hulking figure parted the river of guests before him and he stepped back, attempting to shrink down, to become one with the shadows flickering all over the masonry. Snakes of smoke with formless gray scales slithered between them, embers glowing inside their bodies like a treasure of swallowed rubies. Something heavy touched the writer's shoulder, and as he turned his head he saw a claw with enormous fat fingers belonging to a creature that had come from behind and possibly silent despite its massive size. The thing jutting out from under its mask rested heavily across its chest, with a crust of thick, dark green surrounding a slimy, jelly-like interior of glistening verdigris. Should the writer run? Should he fight? Should he stand still and pray? One of his hands wandered to a talisman on his other arm, a bent piece of iron with a wolf's tooth in the center. Time slowed down as he felt cool metal under the folds of his costume, followed the cord, found the knot all, while feeling the grotesque fingers resting on him, warm and crushingly powerful. There was a tightening in their grip, a tensing of rope-like muscles, But before anything happened, the writer heard a scream from elsewhere in the crowd, saw another masked entity holding something red in its hand, coat itself in it, and vanish. The scream followed the writer into the waking world, and he heard curses, shouts, and sounds of metal slicing through flesh. As he stormed out of the tent, everything had already happened. Two soldiers lay dead on the ground, and several more were standing around them. Over the following days... They continued their trek, and every night the haunting dream returned, with only the writer being able to remember it. The Pleasure Palace became more and more vivid, its colors stronger, its piping louder, almost following him out of the dream. He evaded the figures, but they always found a victim, driving one of the soldiers into a homicidal rage until only Giasarni and his handful of others remained. There was little to interrupt the monotony of the wide, sun-dried landscape only distant rock ridges and occasionally a slightly curving river, not a single settlement in sight. All of this was familiar to the soldiers, just what they had seen over the last months of riding and road-building as it was familiar to the rider. He had journeyed the Khan's immense empire for months, and the dreams had led him to strange places, but mostly his horse's hooves had echoed across the empty steppe with only the wind to keep the rider company. They pressed on, and what they found on the sixth day of their journey, the dreams almost unbearably real by now, was something none of them had expected. A step-well reached into the earth, a vast hole with walls of man-made stairs. Several dark openings led into smaller tunnels branching off from the well, and its bottom was so far down that no sunlight could reach it, shrouding it in black. What is this? The remaining soldiers spread out around the stepwell. This looks really old, but it isn't on any of our maps. We will find out, won't we? Let's go. Jasarni took the lead, and soon they were climbing down, leaving more and more of the sun's brightness behind. The stones of the well seemed old indeed, covered with the traces of hand-held chisels, the steps far too steep and narrow to have been built by anything other than human sweat and toil. The rider stared into the darkness of a side tunnel, but could only make out the vague outlines of subterranean chambers and shafts. Why did the dreams lead him here? He was unwilling to explore the side tunnel without any further signs, without any more visions of his sister. Maybe this was a fight that didn't concern him. Maybe he had strayed from his path. Finally, they reached the lowest level, and in the shine of their newly lit torches, they could see the only thing worth seeing, embedded in the north wall of the well's bottom. It was a stone portal, The reliefs across its surface weathered and faded, but otherwise perfectly intact, waiting to stand the test of time for many more centuries. The rider heard faint noises echoing through the well, a strange piping reminiscent of the honoric feast. For one heartbeat, their own shadows seemed to dance in tune with it. This is it. The rider made no attempt to approach the stone door. There is nothing to be done, I sense this now. We should leave, and you will have to build your road further to the south. He made a step back, but Jasarni and his surviving men didn't. But it would be a tremendous waste to have to come here for nothing, wouldn't it? Jasarni's ring-heavy hands caressed the stone, followed the lines of ancient reliefs. Let us open this door. Let us see what lies beyond. The mighty Khan does not suffer to have his roads built elsewhere, to circumvent obstacles when he can overcome them. No. When the rider blinked, Disarni's soldiers wore costumes, and the portal had assumed a humanoid shape, staring at him with a mouthless mask face. Don't open that door. I have to. Guards, kill the stranger. The rider reached the horses first, leapt into the saddle, and drove his mount to a swift trot. The soldiers streamed out of the step well after him, and the rider knew that he had no choice but to fight them. In a cloud of dust, he pressed against the horse's flanks to ride a semicircle, drawing his bow simultaneously. The arrow soared into the sky in a high arc, then struck down as a hawk might drilling deep into a soldier's chest. The others reached their own horses, climbed on, and galloped. A second arrow missed its mark. A third one hurled a man from the saddle before the rest fell upon the rider. The sun's glare was blinding all of them, and no more arrows flew. The soldiers pushed their horses and drew thin, curved scimitars as they approached. The rider clashed with his first pursuer in a flurry of steel and leather, parried a wild blow and drove his own weapon into flesh. For a moment the blade was stuck. Their horses pressed against each other, their bodies locked in an unwilling embrace. Then the rider broke loose, now swordless, and pulled his dagger. Someone crashed into him from the side and the impact knocked the rider right out of his saddle and left him rolling over the stubbly grass. There were three soldiers left and they all dismounted, striding towards him with bared blades. You don't know what you are doing. The dream has poisoned your minds like it did the others. The rider scrambled to his feet in a fountain of yellow dust. He breathed heavily and felt every bruise on his body. The imprints, the soil and rocks had left on him. Lay down your weapons. The soldier's eyes seemed clouded, reflecting the candles and braziers of the dream palace, as if they were still incarcerated at that feast. Suddenly, they sprinted and swung their scimitars and the rider's instincts took over. He dove low under a strike, cut tendons and got back up, thrusting backwards, turning, narrowly evading an attack. One of his legs had been injured in the fall from his horse and he tilted to the side, which inadvertently saved him from having his face cut open. The dagger flickered, his elbow struck out, and he stabbed and stabbed and stabbed until it was all over. The rider panted. Every muscle in his body strained, his wounds bleeding. His injured leg was in bad shape, but at least his horse was coming back, trotting in from the step as if nothing had happened. (sighs) What now? There had been no trace of Gisarni during the entire battle, and the rider knew that he must have stayed down in the shaft before the door, more than willing to open it. As the rider looked into the stepwell, he glimpsed something rippling in the tunnels, trudging figures that produced music, the stretched-out sounds of unearthly flutes. The rider swallowed, patted his horse and the talismans on his arms. Then he began to descend. Even after he had reached the bottom and adjusted his eyes to the twilight, the rider could not see Gisarney. He limped along the lowest stair level and peeked into a tunnel entrance, then faced the inevitable. Before the portal lay Gisarnia's caftan, left behind on the ground like the skin of a snake. The stone door was slightly ajar, and the writer could hear a sound from behind it, a sound that made his blood run cold and his teeth hurt. It was a munching noise, a ripping and a tearing, rasping and cracking, an indescribably gruesome racket. It cost the writer every shred of his willpower to not turn and run, but he made a few steps forward, withstood the temptation to look through the gap and press the door shut. The sounds stopped vibrating in the air, but the writer could still feel them in his ears, his bones, his head. Whatever happened in there, it didn't care for the things out in the step well, for humans, animals, or even the divine wind of the step. For several days, the writer kept seeing the feast in the nameless pleasure palace at night, the trudging figures, the masses of costume guests. He waited for his turn to be ripped open, almost expected it to come because he had gotten too close, seen too much. But the further he rode, the more the palace faded, the more distant the piping became. It took him days to accept that he had made it. He slept in the saddle, and slowly his dreams returned to the way they had been leading him back on the path he had strayed from. The stepgrass swayed in its ancestral patterns like flaxen hair, and the writer dreamt of his lost sister. That was Dennis Mombauer's The Feasting Dream, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by me. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Our second story for the night is a classic. Robert Irvin Howard was an American author who wrote pulp fiction in a diverse range of genres. He is well known for his character Conan the Barbarian and is regarded as the father of the sword and sorcery subgenre. Howard was born and raised in Texas. He spent most of his life in the town of Cross Plains, with some time spent in nearby Brownwood. A bookish and intellectual child, he was also a fan of boxing, and spent some time in his late teens bodybuilding, eventually taking up amateur boxing. From the age of nine, he dreamed of becoming a writer of adventure fiction, but did not have real success until he was 23. Thereafter, until his death by suicide, at age 30, Howard's writings were published in a wide selection of magazines, journals, and newspapers, and he became proficient in several subgenres. His greatest success occurred after his death. Although Conan Novel was nearly published in 1934, Howard's stories were never collected during his lifetime. The main outlet for his stories was Weird Tales, where Howard created Conan the Barbarian. With Conan and his other heroes, Howard helped fashion the genre now known as sword and sorcery, spawning many imitators and giving him a large influence in the fantasy field. Howard remains a highly read author with his best works still reprinted. Howard's suicide and the circumstances surrounding it have led to speculation about his mental health. His mother had been ill with tuberculosis his entire life, and upon learning she had entered a coma from which she was not expected to wake, He walked out to his car and shot himself in the head. Children of the night, this evening we will be hearing Robert E. Howard's Skulls in the Stars.
2: There are two roads to Torkertown, one, the shorter and more direct route, leads across a barren upland moor, and the other, which is much longer, winds its torturous way in and out among the hummocks and quagmires of the swamps, skirting the low hills to the east. It was a dangerous and tedious trail, so Solomon Kane halted in amazement when a breathless youth from the village he had just left overtook him and implored him for God's sake to take the swamp road. "'The Swamp Road,' Kane stared at the boy. "'He was a tall, gaunt man,' was Solomon Cain, "'his darkly pallid face and deep, brooding eyes "'made more somber by the drab, puritanical garb he affected. "'Yes, sir, tis far safer,' the youngster answered to his surprised exclamation. "'Then the moor road must be haunted by Satan himself, "'for your townsman warned me against traversing the other. "'Because of the quagmire, sir, that you might not see in the dark.' "'You had better return to the village and continue your journey in the morning, sir.' "'Taking the swamp road. "'Yes, sir.' Kane shrugged his shoulders and shook his head. "'The moon rises almost as soon as twilight dies. "'By its light I can reach Torkertown in a few hours across the moor. "'Sir, you had better not. "'No one ever goes that way. "'There are no houses at all upon the moor.' While in the swamp there is the house of old Ezra, who lives there all alone since his maniac cousin Gideon wandered off and died in the swamp and was never found. And old Ezra, though a miser, would not refuse you lodging should you decide to stop until morning. Since you must go, you had better go the swamp road. Cain eyed the boy piercingly. The lad squirmed and shuffled his feet. "'Since this moor-road is so dour to wayfarers,' said the Puritan, "'why did not the villagers tell me the whole tale, instead of vague mouthings?' "'Men like not talk of it, sir. "'We hoped that you would take the swamp-road after the men advised you to, "'but when we watched you and saw that you turned not at the forks, "'they sent me to run after you and beg you to reconsider.' "'Name of the devil!' exclaimed Cain sharply. "'the unaccustomed oath showing his irritation. "'The swamp road and the moor road. "'What is it that threatens me, "'and why should I go miles out of my way "'at the risks of bogs and mires?' "'Sir,' said the boy, dropping his voice and drawing closer, "'we be simple villagers who like not to talk of such things lest foul fortune befall us. "'But the moor road is a way accursed "'and hath not been traversed by any of the countryside "'for a year or more.' It is death to walk these moors by night, as hath been found by some score of unfortunates. Some foul horror haunts the ways and claims men for his victims. So, and what is this thing like? No man knows. None has ever seen it and lived, but late fairers have heard terrible laughter out on the fen, and men have heard the horrid shriek of its victims. Sir... In God's name, return to the village, there pass the night, and tomorrow take the swamp trail to Torkertown. Far back in Kane's gloomy eyes, a scintillant light had begun to glimmer, like a witch's torch glinting under fathoms of cold gray ice. His blood quickened. Adventure, the lure of life-risk and drama. Not that Kane recognized his sensations as such. He sincerely considered that he voiced his real feelings when he said it, These things be deeds of some power of evil. The lords of darkness have lain a curse upon the country. A strong man is needed to combat Satan and his might. Therefore I go, who have defiled him many a time. Sir, the boy began, then closed his mouth as he saw the futility of argument. He only added, The corpses of the victims are bruised and torn, sir. He stood there at the crossroads, sighing regretfully as he watched the tall, rangy figure swinging up the road that led towards the moors. The sun was setting as Cain came over the brow of the low hill which debauched into the upland fen. Huge and blood-red, it sank down behind the sullen horizons of the moors, seeming to touch the rank grass with fire, so for a moment the watcher seemed to be gazing out across a sea of blood. Then the dark shadows came gliding from the east, The western blaze faded, And Solomon Cain struck out boldly into the gathering darkness. The road was dim from disuse, but was clearly defined. Cain went swiftly but warily, sword and pistols in hand. Stars blinked out, and night winds whispered Among the grass like weeping scepters. The moon began to rise, lean and haggard, like a skull among the stars. Then suddenly Cain stopped short. From somewhere in front of him sounded a strange and eerie echo, or something like an echo. Again, this time louder. Cain stared forward again. Were his senses deceiving him? No. Far out there pealed a whisper of frightful laughter, and again closer this time. No human being ever laughed like that, There was no mirth in it, only hatred and horror and soul-destroying terror. Cain halted. He was not afraid, but for a second he was almost unnerved. Then, stabbing through that awesome laughter, came the sound of a scream that was undoubtedly human. Cain started forward, increasing his gait. He cursed the elusive lights and the flickering shadows which veiled the moor in the rising moon and made accurate sight impossible. The laughter continued, growing louder as did the screams. Then sounded faintly the drum of frantic human feet. Cain broke into a run. Some human being was being hunted to death out there on the fen, and by what manner of horror God only knew. The sound of flying feet halted abruptly, and the screaming rose unbearably, mingled with other sounds unnameable and hideous. Evidently the man had been overtaken, and Cain, his flesh crawling, visualized some ghastly fiend of the darkness crouching on the back of its victim, crouching and tearing. Then the noise of a terrible and short struggle came clearly through the abysmal silence of the night, and the footfalls began again, but stumbling and uneven. The screaming continued, but with a gasping gurgle, the sweat stood cold on Cain's forehead and body. This was a heaping horror on horror in an intolerable manner, God for a moment's clear light. The frightful drama was being enacted within a very short distance of him, To judge by the ease with which the sounds reached him. But this hellish half-light veiled all in shifting shadows, So that the moors appeared a haze of blurred illusions, And stunted trees and bushes seemed like giants. Cain shouted, striving to increase the speed of his advance. The shrieks of the unknown broke into a hideous shrill squealing, Again there was the sound of a struggle, And then from the shadows of the tall grass A thing came reeling, A thing that had once been a man, A gore-covered, frightful thing That fell at Cain's feet and writhed and groveled And raised its terrible face to the rising moon And gibbered and yammered And fell down again and died in its own blood. The moon was up now and the light was better, Kane bent over the body which lay stark in its unnameable mutation and he shuddered a rare thing for him who had seen the deeds of the spanish inquisition and the witchfinders some wayfarer he supposed then like a hand of ice on his spine he was aware that he was not alone he looked up his cold eyes piercing the shadows whence the dead man had staggered he saw nothing but he knew he felt That other eyes gave back a stare Terrible eyes, not of this earth He straightened and drew a pistol, waiting The moonlight spread like a lake of pale blood over the moor And the trees and grasses took on their proper sizes The shadows melted, and Cain saw At first he thought it only a shadow of mist A wisp of moor fog that swayed in the tall grass before him He gazed, more illusion, he thought. Then the thing began to take on shape, vague and indistinct. Two hideous eyes flamed at him, eyes which held all the stark horror which has been the heritage of man since the fearful dawn of ages. Eyes frightful and insane, with an insanity transcending earthly insanity. The form of the thing was misty and vague, a brain-shattering travesty on the human form. Like, yet horribly unlike. The grass and bushes beyond showed clearly through it. Cain felt the blood pound in his temples, yet he was cold as ice. How such an unstable being as that which wavered before him could harm a man in a physical way was more than he could understand. Yet the red horror at his feet gave mute testimony that the fiend could act with terrible material effect. Of one thing Kane was sure, there would be no hunting him across the moors, no screaming and fleeing to be dragged down again and again. If he must die, he would die in his tracks, his wounds in front. Now a vague and grisly mouth gaped wide, and the demonic laughter again shrieked out, soul-shaking in its nearness. And in the midst of that threat of doom, Kane deliberately leveled his long pistol and fired. A maniacal yell of rage and mockery answered the report, and the thing came at him like a flying sheet of smoke, long shadowy arms stretched to drag him down. Kane moving with the dynamic speed of a famished wolf, fired the second pistol with as little effect, snatched his long rapier from its sheath, and thrust it into the center of the misty attacker. The blade sang as it passed clear through, encountering no solid resistance, "'and Cain felt icy fingers grip his limbs, "'bestial talons tear his garments and the skin beneath. "'He dropped the useless sword and sought to grapple with his foe. "'It was like fighting a floating mist, "'a flying shadow armed with dagger-like claws. "'His savage blows met empty air, "'his lean, mighty arms, in whose grasp strong men had died, "'swept nothingness and clutched emptiness.' Nought was solid or real save the flaying, ape-like fingers with their crooked talons, and the crazy eyes which burned into the shuddering depths of his soul. Cain realized that he was in a desperate plight indeed. Already his garments hung in tatters, and he bled from a score of deep wounds. But he never flinched, and the thought of flight never entered his mind. He had never fled from a single foe, and had the thought occurred to him, he would have flushed with shame. He saw no help for it now, but that his form should lie there beside the fragments of the other victim. But the thought held no terror for him. His only wish was to give as good account of himself as possible before the end came, and, if he could, to inflict some damage on his unearthly foe. There above the dead man's torn body... Man fought with demon under the pale light of the rising moon, with all the advantages with the demon save one, and that one was enough to overcome all the others, for if abstract hate may bring into material substance a ghostly thing, may not courage, equally abstract, form a concrete weapon to combat that ghost? Cain fought with his arms and his feet and his hands, and he was aware at last that the ghost began to give back before him, and the fearful laughter changed to screams of baffled fury. For the man's only weapon is courage that flinches not from the gates of hell itself, and against such not even legions of hell can stand. Of this Cain knew nothing. He only knew that the talons which tore and rend him seemed to grow weaker and wavering, that a wild light grew and grew in the horrible eyes, and reeling and gasping he rushed in, grappled with the thing at last and threw it, and as they tumbled about on the moor, and it writhed and lapped his limbs like a serpent of smoke, his flesh crawled and his hair stood on end, for he began to understand its gibbering. He did not hear and comprehend as a man hears and comprehends the speech of man, but the frightful secrets it imparted in whisperings and yammerings and screaming silences sank fingers of ice into his soul, and he knew. The hut of old Ezra, the miser, stood by the road in the mists of the swamp, half-screened by the sullen trees which grew about it. The walls were rotting, the roof crumbling, and the great pallid and green fungus monsters clung to it and writhed about the doors and windows, as if seeking to peer within. The trees leaned above it, and their gray branches intertwined so that it crouched in semi-darkness like a monstrous dwarf over whose shoulders ogres leer. The road, which wound down into the swamp among rotting stumps and rank hummocks and scummy snake haunted pools and bogs, crawled past the hut. Many people passed that way these days, but few saw old Ezra, save a glimpse of a yellow face. Peering through the fungus-green windows, Itself like an old fungus. Old Ezra the miser partook much of the quality of the swamp, For he was gnarled and bent and sullen. His fingers were like clutching parasitic plants, And his locks hung like drab moss above his eyes Trained to the murk of the swamplands. His eyes were like a dead man's, Yet hinted of depths, abysmal and loathsome, And the dead lakes of the swamplands. These eyes gleamed now at the man who stood in front of his hut. This man was tall and gaunt and dark. His face was haggard and claw-marked, and he was bandaged of arm and leg. Somewhat behind this man stood a number of villagers. You are Ezra of the Swamp Road? Aye, and what do you want of me? Where is your cousin Gideon, the maniac youth who abode with you? Gideon? ay He wandered away into the swamp and never came back. No doubt he lost his way and was set upon by wolves or died in a quagmire, or was struck by an adder. How long ago, over a year? My Harky, Ezra the miser, soon after your cousin's disappearance, a countryman coming home across the moors was set upon by some unknown fiend and torn to pieces and thereafter it became death to cross the moors. First men of the countryside, then strangers who wander over the fen, fell to the clutches of the thing. Many men have died since the first one. Last night I crossed the moors, and heard the flight and pursuing of another victim, a stranger who knew not the evil of the moors. Ezra the miser, it was a fearful thing, for the wretch twice broke from the fiend, terribly wounded, and each time the demon caught and dragged him down again. And at last he fell dead at my feet, done to death in a manner that would freeze the statue of a saint. The villagers moved restlessly and murmured fearfully to each other, and old Ezra's eyes shifted furiously. Yet the somber expression of Solomon Cain never altered. "'and his condor-like stare seemed to transfix the miser. "'Aye, aye,' muttered old Ezra hurriedly, "'a bad thing, a bad thing. "'Yet why do you tell this thing to me?' "'Aye, a sad thing. "'Hearken further, Ezra. "'The fiend came out of the shadows, "'and I fought with it over the body of its victim. "'Aye, how I overcame it I know not, "'for the battle was hard and long, "'but the powers of good and light were on my side.' which are mightier than the powers of hell. At the last I was stronger, and it broke from me and fled, and I followed to no avail. Yet before it fled, it whispered to me a monstrous truth. Old Ezra started, started wildly seeming to shrink into himself. Nay, why tell me this? he muttered. I returned to the village and told my tale, said Cain. FOR I KNEW THAT NOW I HAD THE POWER TO RID THE MOORS OF ITS CURSE FOREVER. EZRA, COME WITH US. WHERE? GASPED THE MISER. TO THE ROTTING OAK ON THE MOORS. EZRA REELED AS THOUGH STRUCK. HE SCREAMED INCOHERENTLY AND TURNED TO FLEE. ON THAT INSTANT, AT CAIN'S SHARP ORDER, TWO BRAWNY VILLAGERS SPRANG FORWARD AND SEIZED THE MISER. They twisted the dagger from his withered hand, and pinioned his arms, shuddering as their fingers encountered his clammy flesh. Cain motioned them to follow, and turning strode up the trail, followed by the villagers, who found their strength taxed to the utmost in their task of bearing their prisoner along. Through the swamp they went and out, taking a little used trail which led up over the low hills and out on the moors. The sun was sliding down the horizon, and old Ezra stared at it with bulging eyes, stared as if he could not gaze enough. Far out on the moors reared up the great oak tree, like a giblet, now only a decaying shell. There Solomon Kane halted. Old Ezra writhed in his captor's grasp and made inarticulate noises. Over a year ago, said Solomon Kane. You, fearing that your insane cousin Gideon would tell men of your cruelties to him, brought him away from the swamp by the very trail by which we came and murdered him here in the night. Ezra cringed and snarled. You cannot prove this lie. Cain spoke a few words to an agile villager. The youth clambered up the rotting bole of the tree and from a crevice high up dragged something that fell with a clatter to the feet of the miser. Ezra went limp with a terrible shriek. The object was a man's skeleton, the skull cleft. You, how you knew this, you are Satan, gibbered old Ezra. Cain folded his arms. The thing I fought last night told me this thing as we reeled in battle, and I followed it to this tree. For the fiend is Gideon's ghost. Ezra shrieked again and fought savagely. You knew, said Cain somberly, you knew what thing did these deeds. You feared the ghost of the maniac, and that is why you chose to leave his body on the fen instead of concealing it in the swamp. For you knew the ghost would haunt the place of his death. He was insane in life, and in death he did not know where to find his slayer, else he had come to your hut. But he hates no man but you." But his mazed spirit cannot tell one man from another, And he slays all, lest he let his killer escape. Yet he will know you and rest in peace forever after. Hate had made this ghost a solid thing that can rend and slay, And though he feared you terribly in life, In death he fears you not at all. Cain halted. He glanced at the sun. All this I had from Gideon's ghost, In his yammerings and his whisperings And his shrieking silences. Not but your death will lay that ghost. Ezra listened in breathless silence, And Cain pronounced the words of his doom. A hard thing it is, said Cain somberly, To sentence a man to death in cold blood And in such a manner as I have in mind. But you must die that others may live, And God knoweth you deserve death. You shall not die by the noose, bullet, or sword, But the talons of him you slew, For naught else will satiate him. At these words, Ezra's brain shattered, His knees gave way, and he fell groveling And screaming for death, Begging them to burn him at the stake, To flay him alive. Cain's face was set like death, And the villagers, the fear rousing their cruelty, Bound the screeching wretch to the oak tree and one of them bade him to make his peace with God. But Ezra made no answer, shrieking in a high, shrill voice with unbearable monotony. Then the villager would have struck the miser across the face, but Cain stayed him. Let him make his peace with Satan, whom he is more like to meet, said the Puritan grimly. The sun is about to set. Loose his cords so that he may work loose by dark, since it is better to meet death free and unshackled than bound like a sacrifice. As they turned to leave him, old Ezra yammered and gibbered inhuman sounds and then fell silent, staring at the sun with terrible intensity. They walked across the fen and Cain flung a last look at the grotesque form bound to the tree, seeming in the uncertain light like a great fungus growing to the bole. And suddenly the miser screamed hideously, Death, death, there are skulls in the stars. Life was good to him, Though he was gnarled and churlish and evil, Cain sighed. Mayhap God has a place for such souls Where fire and sacrifice may cleanse them of their dross As fire cleans the forest of fungus things. Yet my heart is heavy within me. Nay, sir, one of the villagers spoke, You have done but the will of God, and good alone shall come of this night's deed. Nay, answered Cain heavily, I know not, I know not. The sun had gone down and night spread with amazing swiftness, as its great shadows came rushing down from unknown voids to cloak the world with hurrying darkness. Through the thick night came a weird echo, and the men halted and looked back the way they had come. Nothing could be seen. The moor was an ocean of shadow, and the tall grass about them bent in long waves before the faint wind, breaking the deathly stillness with breathless murmurings. Then, far away, the red disk of the moon rose over the fen, and for an instant a grim silhouette was etched blackly against it. A shape came flying across the face of the moon, A bent, grotesque thing whose feet seemed scarcely to touch the earth. And close behind came a thing like a flying shadow, A nameless, shapeless horror. A moment the racing twain stood out boldly against the moon. Then they merged into one unnameable, formless mass And vanished in the shadows. Far across the fen sounded a single shriek of terrible laughter.
1: That was Robert E. Howard's Skulls and the Stars as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and editor at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with a husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth, for all that you do for Tales to Terrify. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.